and welcome to Eventful, the podcast for meeting professionals. I'm your host, Lauren Edelstein with North Star Meetings Group. Eventful, the podcast, is our way of inviting you to join some of the interesting conversations we have with people in our business about topics that really should be on your radar. I look forward to hearing what you think, and please be sure to subscribe. North Star Meetings Group was very fortunate this year to have one of our very own attend the Olympic Games in Tokyo. Uh, Jason Gortz, editor and publisher of Sports Travel, has been covering the Olympics for several years. But of course, this year couldn't have been more different for some estimated 50,000 people, and that's the number without any spectators who came to Tokyo or still will come and go for this year's games. So I'm very grateful to my bleary-eyed colleague who just returned last night and will cover the remainder of the games from his home turf for being here today to discuss the extensive protocols in place and how major international events in the future might end up implementing some of the same measures. Hi, Jason, and welcome back from your Olympic experience. I'm glad that you're uh, willing to talk to us about it. You must be jet lagged having just returned last night. <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, I, I did take the big trip back, but thankfully, and as we can discuss, the the trip back was much easier than the trip there. Right. Uh, as, as far as getting in and out of the airport. Yeah. At least, so. so let's start there. But first, this is your the fifth Olympic Games that you've attended. And I'm sure quite different than every other Olympic experience. So I'm interested to know, first of all, about the logistics of traveling to Tokyo for this event and what you needed to do in advance. It was not easy for anybody to get uh, into Tokyo, whether you were an athlete or a member of the media like we were, or if you were a coach or official or broadcaster, any of the groups that, that go to an Olympic Games. Several months out, starting back in February, Lauren, the International Olympic Committee started issuing what they called playbooks. And these were very large documents individualized to all these different subsets. So we as media had our own playbook. Athletes had their own playbook. Officials, people involved with the international sports federations who attend, had their own uh, playbooks. And these playbooks sort of outlined what was to be expected of you, both as far as testing, as far as what you were allowed to do, how far off the beaten track you know you were able to go once you were there. In the normal Olympics, you can pretty much come and go as you please. This one was very locked down. And so about six months out, they started issuing these playbooks. They eventually had three versions of it, the last one of which was issued in June, which, of course, had the most detail of what you were and were not allowed to do. And among the things in there, Lauren, that they spelled out in these playbooks were the testing. So in order to go to Tokyo, no matter who you were, uh, an athlete or a member of the media, you had to submit uh, two negative tests within 96 hours of leaving. Two. One of uh, two of them. One of them had to be within 72 hours, uh, but they wanted you to have two with basically within four days of your departure. You had to have that before you could even board the plane to go over there. And then once you land in Tokyo, you get tested at the airport. And so that is a process that for me, and this was typical of a lot of people going over there, uh, took about six hours after wow. we landed in Tokyo. In uh, the airport. Tested in the airport, yeah. And that was a process of checking all kinds of paperwork that we had to have on file, uh, saying who we were, showing our negative test results, a number of documents that we had to fill out for the Japanese government before we even left. 
outlining where we intended to go, which was sort of funny in itself because we were told there really wasn't anywhere you could go except for your hotel or a competition venue or the, the main press center, which is a, uh, an operation that they have in a giant convention center in Tokyo where the media works out of. But we were limited to all those places, but we still had to submit what they call an activity plan, spelling out for the folks in Tokyo exactly where we intended to be during the course of our stay. And so at the airport on arrival in Tokyo, they're checking that as well. They're, they're going over all these documents. And you had to, of course, take the test, which was a saliva-based PCR test. You know, that, that process took uh, about a minute of the six hours. Uh, and then it was about <laughs> and you've three got hours. H- hundreds of people spitting in test tubes. Oh, in yeah. The yeah. I mean, even before you got the, the, you know, the thrill and the, and the privilege of spitting, it was about two and a half hours until I got to that portion of the of the experience. Oh, and then and they're processing your sample. Yeah, they're, and then they're processing the sample. So for us, I flew United into Narita, and they had the basically the lounge, the United lounge there, where they we got to sit and wait with everyone who was on my plane. We were there for about three hours waiting for our, our test results until we were released to customs and, and the normal process that you go through just to get, get through the airport. So I got to know everyone very well on our flight. Anyone who was associated with the Olympics, we were the last to get off our plane. You know, anyone who was non-Olympics got to leave uh, earlier and presumably had a quicker process, although I, I don't know because they were separated from us. So, you know, it was a, it was a long uh, trip just to get there and a very long trip just to get out of the airport. Right. By, by necessity of, of how much they were checking and, and verifying and double verifying. I think I had my passport checked. I was counting at least 12 times by 12 wow. different people at the airport at different stops um, along the uh, way. Just on arrival. arrival. Just on arrival. Yeah. yeah, that was before you could uh, find your way to your hotel or, or anything else. So obviously that's very unusual for an Olympics or for any international travel. And that was the result of the of what we're living through. That's the result of trying to organize the largest sports event in the world, still in the middle of a pandemic. You know, the, the COVID rates, unfortunately, are, are going up in Tokyo. There was a lot of criticism and a lot of conversation around whether this event should even take place. You know, could, could the International Olympic Committee really keep a, a bubble of sorts between all these international visitors coming while at the same time, you know, the population in Japan is, is seeing their rates go up and in Tokyo. Right. You know, during the first week of the games, they had their highest rates that they've ever recorded. And there were a few instances that made the news of positive cases, but very few, right? Was that uh, your very, understanding as well? Yeah, very few. Uh, to give you an example, as of today, as we're, we're talking, you know, the IOC was updating their, their own testing results and, and positivity rates. And yes, you know, of course, any athletes who tested positive, and there have been, you know, a, a few dozen at this point, get, as you can imagine, quite a bit of media attention. But the reality is that as of, as of today, we're having this conversation, there have been 450,000 screening tests of, of the population of Olympic people wow. who have visited Japan. And of those, they had 90 confirmed positives. So that's a positivity rate of 0.02%. And at the airport alone, they've conducted so far over 42,000 tests and 35 were positive. Wow. So uh, while, you know, the positive rates, of course, are going to get publicity when put into the overall context of how much they're testing everyone who's there. So I mentioned these these playbooks. They, they outlined how often testing is taking place once you get out of that wonderful experience at Narita Airport uh, or wherever <laughs> you, you land in Tokyo. Uh, so athletes, of course, are getting tested every day. 
as are anyone who has direct contact with the athletes or their coaches as well. They're taking a a saliva-based PCR test every single day of their experience. For me, as a visiting member of the media, I was tested each of the first three days that I was there. And then after that, once every four days. And so everyone has their own cycle of testing based on how close their contact is with the athletes. Because at the end of the day, that's the group that, of course, they want to keep uh, as clean as possible. And depending who you are, you may have uh, direct contact or you may have uh, more indirect contact. Uh, mm-hmm. Interviews, for instance, between media and, and athletes uh, take place in what they call a mixed zone uh, at each event. There's a lineup uh, where media can interview athletes you know, immediately following their competition. That's normally face-to-face. And to an extent, it, it's, it was in Tokyo, although there was a six-foot barrier um, and was you know, it a physical barrier? Was it no? There was no plexiglass or anything. It was just uh, it was just separation. So just it was sort of fencing uh, where you had to you know yell out your question maybe a little louder than you normally would otherwise. Okay, and just six feet because that that was it really just six feet that they kept between the athletes and the media. Yeah, for for the purposes of that for that interview yeah. uh, space, that's about what it was. You know, other than that though, you know, there really uh, there wasn't a scenario where I could have gotten any closer to an athlete during during competition or, I mean, or they, anybody for that matter right i mean were you closer to the media when you were yeah yeah, yeah yes or no so you'd be you'd be surprised there is a, a a pretty extensive transportation network that goes on you know a whole entity unto itself that happens at the olympic games so athletes have their own transportation they have a, a series of buses or cars that they can call uh, to get to their venue for practices for competitions For the media, there's a very robust system that takes place. Interestingly, the original plan in Tokyo, Lauren, was to have the media and pretty much anyone else uh, take public transportation. They had initially set up about 200 hotels where they were going to house media across the city. And the reason they did that is because the public transportation, the trains, the buses are so good in Tokyo that uh, they would have a separated and there was always a train station nearby that could get you wherever you needed to go. When the pandemic hit, they had to flip that entire model upside down. So there was no use of public transportation allowed unless you had been there for 14 days. After 14 days, you were allowed to, say, hop on a train to get where you wanted to go. But before then, you had to take a bus that was provided to you. And so these buses were crowded buses. I mean, I was on, you know, crowded buses with other media members, all required to wear a mask at all time. And, And I will say... The media particularly, even though they were coming from all different parts of the world where they may have their own thoughts or opinions about masking, everybody had a mask on, including right. myself. I have uh, never at all worn times. a mask uh, for his, at, at all times, yeah. uh, you know, except if you were eating. There were a few dining establishments they had at the, at the media center where, of course, you could take your mask off to eat. But other than that, your mask was on the entire time, whether you were on a bus or whether you were working in this convention center or certainly if you were at a venue. Right. And, uh, and people were, were holding to that. You know, there were certainly some cases of, of athletes you know, at the opening ceremonies, even some who were, wanted to pose without their masks when they won a medal. And so the IOC was changing those rules on the fly. You know, they, they did allow medalists to go 30 seconds unmasked wow, for the purposes of uh, the imagery. And uh, I will say that 30-second rule immediately was violated by just about, <laughs> about mm-hmm. everybody who wanted to stay longer on the podium you know, with right. their maskless uh, face uh, biting their medal or whatever right. they uh, decided to do. Wow. So that was interesting, and that's something that was you know, changing on the fly, even though there were protocols in place uh, because... 
they started to be violated. And then, you know, there's some, there's uh, some public relations there as well, just of the, the images that they wanted out there, you know, right. for the athletes who worked so hard to, to get to that podium step. Like they wanted to show the precautions being uh, taken and uh, both. I, I think they wanted to show the precautions and they wanted to, you know, bend as far as they could for, were these people who you know had devoted four or in this case now five years with the extra uh, delay yeah. of their lives to it to reach one of these podium steps and just wanted a picture of themselves without a mask for thirty seconds. Right. You know? right, that's kind of interesting as well. And those are some of the fascinating nuances that go on in that push pull relationship between athletes and what they would like to see happen and and the Olympic Committee, which right. uh, had sometimes has their own versions. And, what they'd like to see happen. Well, let me ask you from from the point of view of an international meeting professional, what, how do you think the logistics were handled and what, if a, if a big international meeting were to be held next week, like what would you see, what would you advise the meeting planner <laughs> to take from the Olympics or to not? Sure. Boy, a couple things. For starters, as they had to, you know, they got out of the, in front of things as early as they could. I think when they realized a year ago that they were postponing the Olympic Games, they realized that if they really were going to do this this year, they needed to have some precautions in place. And you could debate how good a job they did at that. I would argue that, you know, we're one week into the Games, and so far it seems to be succeeding. I mean, the, the bubble for the most part has held. There don't seem to be any documented cases of someone in the Olympic family spreading COVID to the general population of Japan. I mean, I think they've, they've done a good job separating them. And that was by design. And it was a multi-stepped design. It was not uh, you know, a plan they put in place a year ago, or as I said, even six months ago and stuck to it. Uh, it was a plan that they continued to update as circumstances changed. At the end of the day, what's interesting, probably the most interesting thing of all, is had they done this event a year ago, as they initially planned, the COVID rates were actually much lower in Japan than they are right now. And that mm-hmm. was the whole justification for, you know, for delaying, of course. Of course, they've had a year to study the science and learn quite a bit more about COVID than they, than they would have back when they first made that decision to postpone. But the reality is they continued and are continuing with this event at a time where rates are you know, there locally at their highest. And the reason they feel confident doing it, and I think what other meeting planners can take away from it is, as you can imagine, just so much work in advance. This was not something done on the fly, and they adjusted when they needed to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they continue to adjust even as the games are are continuing. There was also a ton of testing. You know, the only reason this is really taking place and succeeding the way it is, is that everyone is tested as often uh, as they can. And, you know, the testing on the ground was was made easy for us. You know, there was a room that we could go and, mm-hmm. and get our sample kit. So there were instructions on how to do it. There was a barcode on each test, and you just, you know, deposited your test at the end. So they had the resources in place uh, to handle that testing, which to me, I think was crucial. But without that, I don't see how they really could have uh, gone as far as they did and actually be holding this event without knowing what's happening in their own population and and responding to it. Right. Jason, do you know how many people were on site physically between, you know, the coaches, the athletes, the media? Yeah, the the estimate, Lauren, is about 50,000 coming and going. So that includes about 12,000 athletes. There are about 6,000 media. 
There are several thousand people involved in international sport federations, most of whom, of course, pared down their list of who they would typically send uh, to an Olympics. But there's a, a sports infrastructure in place there that needs to happen. There are coaches. There are companies that do things like scoring, timing. This is a whole you know, network of people that, that need to be on site. And when you start adding that up, you get into thousands of people. But what's interesting and different about this Olympic Games and past Olympic Games is the athletes could arrive no sooner than five days before their competition, and they have to leave within two days of their competition ending. So normally, let's say your competition is the second to last day of the Olympics, uh, you might want to show up early and march in the opening cer- ceremonies and hang out at the Olympic Village and experience the host city. Uh, that's not happening at oh, this Olympic wow. Games. Uh, there are limits on, on when you can physically be there for, for an athlete competing. And then you have to leave when you're done, whether you were ousted or whether you Mm -hmm. made it all the way to the end. You know, you have to get out of town as quick as you can. And so you'll see that at the closing ceremony as well, where there just won't be as many athletes there as typically would be the case. Um, And that's, of course, new and unique to this Olympic Games. Wow. So the 50,000 is total people that came through Uh, and they weren't Uh, all there. They couldn't all be there at once. Correct. Uh, so those are people who are sort of coming and going. To some extent, of course, that, that's the case at every Olympics, but it's much more so the case in, in this Olympics. You have a, a much more uh, fluid situation and an entirely different pattern, uh, uh, wave pattern of people coming mm-hmm. and going than what you would normally see. Uh, right. you know, the spectators, as you might recall, international spectators were banned you know, months out. And then the local spectators were, were banned only about a month before the Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine from a meeting plan. And even families, even families oh, were yeah, banned. Yeah, for sure. That includes friends and families. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's been a, a big storyline of these Olympics is the athletes themselves. They don't have family members there. They don't have friends. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's a big void. I mean, it's obviously a, a bigger thing for the athletes than it is for anyone else. But you, you really can't, you know, put a, a value on what it means for these people to have that kind of support with them. These are, right. you know, parents, uh, friends, uh, supporters who have helped them emotionally, financially to get where they are. And the, and the thought of having this experience without them was just devastating yeah. for, for a number of these athletes. So, you know, fewer people certainly learn at this one than there would be at a typical Olympic Games. Obviously, uh, spectators is a big one. You know, you'd have tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people right. over the course of two weeks attending these things. And, and of course, nobody is. And that's, uh, from a financial end, that is just devastating for Tokyo 2020, the local organizing committee. The way this works is their revenue is really derived from ticketing. Um. And without that revenue, they are putting on the bravest face that they can to continue organizing this event, knowing uh, that they are going to have a, a massive financial loss compared to what they thought uh, seven, eight years ago when they were awarded the Olympic Games. Even in uh, terms the international, of business. Yeah, the International Olympic Committee, they're going to be just fine. Uh, their money comes from this event being on television, which is one of the many reasons why this event is still taking place and, and had to take place, at least made for TV. Mm-hmm. Right. And, the, and Tokyo loses all the local business, the restaurants and hotel yeah. space, you know, that would have yeah. been filled with spectators. For sure. For spectators, even for folks like us. I mean, this six, say the 6,000 members uh, of the media who are credentialed in a normal Olympics, while the, the food at the media center is just fine and, and appreciated, you know, they're going out to, to restaurants. They're spending money in the local community. They're mm-hmm. there for, for two weeks in a lot of cases, if not more. 
if you're NBC, you know, your crew might be there for, for two months mm-hmm. setting it up. And under the restrictions on these playbooks, it was made very clear you were not even to go to a restaurant off sites. And so for sure, it's uh, it's just, uh, you know, devastating for, for at least this two week period. Of course, you know, one of the plays for Tokyo or any other host city is not so much the people who might be there during the Olympics, you know, who by and large are people who could afford to, to be there because it's not cheap if you want to just be a spectator to go to the Olympics. The bigger play is uh, two weeks on NBC, say, in, in the United States of, of beautiful images from Tokyo and people who might say, wow, that, that looks amazing and I would like to go there one day. You know, typically a right. year to two years out, a host city will see a, a you know, a very noticeable spike in tourism. And you know, there have been studies done. London is a great example. You know, people are going to London anyway, but a year or two out of the Olympics in 2012, you know, they saw the highest uh, tourism they've ever seen. Because you get the local color stories from the news crews in and about the city and doing the food. Exactly. And and Tokyo will get some of that for sure, you know, to the extent that that they can get it. Of course, it's, you know, it's a a rough uh, two weeks for them not having anyone to experience the games themselves, which is fantastic if you're in a position to do it. But, you know, certainly the hope for them would be as things improve, as they inevitably will, uh, over time that the the imagery at least that they're getting out there on television will will pay off for them in some respect so you know while i say it's it's tough for them right now uh, it is certainly tough this week and, and next week compared to what they were hoping to see out of out of tourism and travel but you know you it's difficult to put some context or some you know value behind what they're going to get having at least their city be center of attention, at least in the sporting world for two weeks and, and right. what that might mean down the road. So just one more question. How do you see this kind of protocol extending to international sporting events or even U.S. domestic sporting events with the with the added testing and fewer people in the stands? Do you think we're going to go backwards at all? It's a great question because, as you might recall, you know they used to do two Olympics a year every four years, you'd have a winter and a summer Olympics in the same year. And then they started several years back breaking those up into two year cycles. But because Tokyo was the later year, the next winter Olympics is in February. It's right around the corner in Beijing, they'll be hosting. And, you know, one can certainly imagine a scenario where if not all of these measures, a good deal of these measures are going to need to be kept in place when those Olympic Games come around in February. I mean, let's hope the world improves. But I think most people would would agree that we won't be completely out of the woods, say, in February. So to some respect, this has laid the groundwork, certainly for the next Olympic Games, certainly for other international competitions that are going to take place in the short term. But I think there are some measures here that, at least in the Olympic world, are probably going to probably going to stick. You know, one of the interesting things logistically, if you have a media credential in a typical Olympics, it's pretty much a free pass to go into any venue you want and report on whatever you, you'd like. This year, in order to keep the numbers down in the venues and, and get a good control over who was, you know, even the limited number of people who were allowed in venue, they were trying to control uh, that population. So media, for instance, had to apply for every event if you wanted to cover something you had to basically submit an application and get approved by Tokyo 2020. Wow. And then they would check that email at the door, although in some cases they didn't, but in most cases they did, uh, to make sure that you were allowed in. That's the type of thing, logistically, I could see them continuing just to get a better handle on, on who's in the venue, say, how many media desks they need to have. It's always kind of a, a mystery. You might set up uh, 200 media desks at a table tennis event and only five people show up. 
you know, or it could be the other way around. So there, I think there are some logistical things that were born out of necessity of the pandemic that very well will, will stick. And I think that'll go beyond the Olympic Games. I think organizers of larger, certainly international sports events are looking to see how they did this because there is no larger event than the Olympic Games. And I think there are some lessons, lessons for sure that can be learned in the sports world and, and probably beyond that to the general you know, meetings and conventions world, just based on how, in this case, the IOC put things together. We still have a week to go as we're having this conversation. So, you know, we'll see how things uh, hold up. I think everyone's still kind of got their fingers crossed a little bit and, and hoping, you know, that we don't see any of the big outbreaks that was the big fear that would eliminate entire teams or entire nations, you know, right. uh, entirely. We didn't see that. And hopefully we won't see that. And in which case, there's going to be a very good uh, blueprint in place uh, for someone who wants to try and emulate even a portion of, of what the IOC has right. at this Olympic Games. Maybe with a little more organization at the airport so that people don't have that for sure. entry can, experience, six hours. The, yeah, if they can cut down the six hours, even the, the one or two Smooth hours. The nice out. part about that is, you know, the expectation was that, that I was going to be there for a while. So, uh, you know, it wasn't as, as devastating as it would have been if I was hoping to have been out of there in 20 minutes and was still there half a day later. So. Right, right. Well, welcome back again, and thank you for um, sharing your experience with us. Appreciate it, Jason. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Lauren. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review us, and check back for new episodes soon.